Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking at the last section of this book, verses 16 through 20. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and would like one, please feel free to take one from the, the tables here. And if you don't have one and you want one for your personal use, you're welcome to take that with you. We provide all our literature free of charge. Please feel free to help yourself to it. It's page 1422 in the church Bibles here. Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 through 20. The journey we started in 2018 of going through this gospel ends today. And what a glorious journey it has been. We've been exposed to many truths, but I hope the most important truth that we've learned is about our gracious Savior, who He is and what He has done for each and every one of us. On more than one occasion as we've been going through this uh, excellent uh, gospel, we've been exposed to the heart of Jesus, especially his heart of love and devotion to the Father and his heart of compassion to lost sinners. And I know, speaking for myself, uh, my love for Jesus has been increased through the work of the Spirit of God and I'm sure it's the same for you as well and uh, at the same time I hope uh, our desire to obey God more has also been increased because the more we understand about a person the more we see the good qualities and the more we want to uh, love them and serve them to the best of our abilities and there is no flaw in Jesus unlike human beings there is no flaw so we, we are I hope on a journey of greater obedience, uh, even greater obedience from the time we uh, started that. And especially today in this last uh, last section, uh, I hope um, that our hearts will be stirred up more uh, to the heart of Jesus. Uh, because this section reveals to us the heart of Christ. It's often called as the Great Commission. This is something that Jesus has entrusted. He entrusted that to his, uh, the, the 11 disciples and by extension to all his followers. So it should move our hearts. That's what's moved people 2,000 years. And as a result of their hearts being moved and them being faithful to this commission, that's why you and I are gathered together here. They took the message to all parts of the world. Uh, so today I pray that... Uh, with a sense of reverence, uh, as I read this passage, we'll, we'll approach this text and ask God to stir our hearts. Lord, I want to take your command here of uh, sharing the gospel to people you bring in my way seriously. This is what we're left on earth for. Not to build our own kingdoms, but to build Christ's kingdom kingdom that will last for all eternity. So let's read these verses and uh, then pray. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. To the very end of the age. Thank you, Father, for recording these words of your Son to us. Thank you that it is this message that the leaven and the others who lived at that time took, took it to heart and through the power of your spirit started a worldwide movement 
that has impacted even us in this small part of the world. How thankful we are for your word never fails to spread, has overcome many obstacles, continues to overcome obstacles, and one day the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. We await that day, but until then, move in our hearts in a mighty way today to take this very seriously. Lord, whatever is coming between you and us, may your spirit radically cut it off because on our own, we don't do it. We don't even desire to do it unless your spirit works in us. So I pray that this would not be just mere words coming from a from the lips of a sinful man. But all of us, including myself, bring us under the authority of your scriptures so we will tremble in fear, recognizing how serious you are when you gave this commission. We thank you and we praise you for your enduring word. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Last week we uh, looked at Jesus having risen from the dead and uh, he met with these uh, dear women uh, and he told them, you know, go tell the leaven that I'm going to meet them in Galilee. Now Matthew does not talk about other appearances of Jesus. He moves right away to the meeting in Galilee and he's focused on the Great Commission. Rather, gospel writers talk about Jesus' appearance more than once. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the ten he met minus Thomas on that first day of resurrection, and then later when Thomas was present. Matthew skips all of that because in his heart he was compelled to get to this part, what we often call as the Great Commission. Here's Jesus assigning the most important mission to all of his apostles and not just his apostles but by extension to every single follower of his. Look at verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. We're not specifically told which mountain this is. Perhaps it was the Mount of Transfiguration, don't know. But obviously the disciples knew. Uh, so they go there. Now, the text here says 11 disciples went. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 talks about 500 believers saw him at the same time. Is that what is referenced here? The 500 along with the 11? Something that's the case? I'm not sure I... I see it that way. They could be right and I could be wrong, but uh, I lean more towards, it's just a specific leaven here. But obviously, we know, the message is applicable to uh, more than the leaven. So they go to this mountain. Notice what happens when they saw him, verse 17. They worshipped him. First response of the woman who met the resurrected Jesus we saw last week was what? Worship. They fall at his feet. They worship him. Again, that's the first response here. Worship. That, that word worship also has the idea of falling flat at his feet. What else can you do when you see the resurrected Christ? So they, they, they cannot get over this. They, they're falling at his feet. But, but the text says, some doubted. Keep in mind, this is not the first appearance of the resurrected Jesus to the disciples. He met them earlier. On that very same resurrected Sunday, he met them. But some of them still are doubting. What's the doubt here? The doubt is, is this really Jesus? Is this really Jesus? The one that rose from the dead. Again, some think it was those who take the view, there was 500 also there, some of the 500. 
again, I, I lean towards, you know, it's, it's part of the leaven. Why do I lean along those lines again? Because of the transparency of the scriptures. The Bible does not hide the doubts that God's people had. I think it's a comforting thing. Because if I'm going to write this, I don't want to show my weaknesses. Especially about the resurrection event. I want everyone to know we had no doubt about the resurrection. But by stating that even his own close people had some doubts, what God is communicating is this. It's okay, even if you have doubts. The doubts didn't stop them from worshipping him. Notice that. They kept going back to Jesus. Sometimes our doubts stop us from going to Jesus. But what the Bible says is, bring your doubts to me. And over time, I'll help you. And that's what, that, that's what ended up for these people. They ended up giving, the, most of them gave up their lives for Jesus. No one will give their lives for knowing something that's a lie. You can be deceived and give your life for a cause. But these people, as they proclaim the resurrection, they were killed for proclaiming the resurrection. They would not be proclaiming the resurrection knowing if it was a lie. But the, with the doubts, they come, they come to Jesus. And, and that's very comforting. Even if you're here as a skeptic, you don't know about this faith. You, you know a little bit. You've been reading. You're not sure. Is this Jesus really the one? It's okay. We're glad you're here. It's good to bring your doubts to Jesus. He will welcome you. He welcomes skeptics. Some of his own were still doubting him after walking with him for three plus years. So you're in good company. Come. Bring your doubts to him. Allow him to work in your heart. Allow him to work in your heart. Faith does not mean absence of doubts. Faith with its doubts keeps going back again and again and again and clings to Jesus. Notice what happened immediately after the disciples worshipped him. And Jesus came to them. Even as they saw him a little far away, they fell down. That's kind of the idea. So Jesus is approaching them. And now he gives them these words that have echoed through 2,000 years. The great words that compel believers to live for a cause that is outside of them. It's not for me, it's for the glory of the Lord. Notice first of all what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is how Jesus starts the Great Commission. First statement, a statement that stresses his own authority. So far in his earthly life, here and there they saw him display his authority, casting out demons, uh, healing the sick and all that, but they never saw Jesus displaying full authority. They saw him crucified in weakness, but now he's resurrected in power. So first thing Jesus is saying, that authority I set aside without relinquishing my deity, that authority has been given to me. Again, notice the humility in our Lord. He didn't take it. The text is clear. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given. It's beautiful, isn't it? Even the resurrected Christ still shows humility towards the Father. Equal to the Father, yet in submission to the Father. He set aside his privileges, came down in the form of a slave, taking on a human nature, humbled himself. How? By dying on a cross and now lifted up. Some of you are all already thinking about Philippians 2, aren't you? Come down. Therefore God exalted him because he humbled himself. God exalted him. And based on that authority that he has, he governs everything. Based on that authority, the full rights to exercise his power, not just having the power, but to exercise his power, that's authority here. Jesus now commissions the leaven and by extension, all of his followers to do this until he returns, the task that he set 
before them. People talk about what's your purpose in life. This is our only purpose in life. We live for Christ. How? In this way. Everything else, every other sphere that God puts us in is a means to accomplishing this ultimate end. This is why we live and breathe and this is what we'll be held accountable for. Were we faithful with our time, talents and treasure in fulfilling this task? What is the task? Therefore, based on my authority, based on you realizing who is it that is enlisting you and commanding you and commissioning you, based on that, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. A lot to address here, but I'm going to make it simple today so that we don't lose focus on the main issue. Okay? Sometimes we can lose focus. The main issue is what? Make disciples of all nations. That's the main issue here. That's the main command. How? How do I make disciples? By doing three things. Go, baptize, teach. Make disciples of all nations. The word disciple in and of itself refers to anyone who is a follower, a learner. That's kind of the idea. But here it specifically refers to those who have identified themselves as followers of Jesus. Those who identified themselves as followers of Jesus because what follows is baptism in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit followed by a lifelong willingness to learn and follow Jesus' teachings. Those are the disciples of Jesus. That word nations comes from the word from which we get the word ethnic or ethnicity. It's in the plural. Some people look at this as Jesus is specifically telling us to take the gospel to people groups and tribes. No question about it. No question about it. But I think there's also this geographical thrust in Jesus' words here. I want you to go to all the world and as you go every place, you are going to be covering peoples of all backgrounds. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? The emphasis that's on the geographical spread is because Luke, if you look at, uh, you're in Matthew, go to the last chapter in Luke. In Luke 24, Jesus, as he's getting ready to ascend, this is what he says, page 1508 here, verse 46 and 47. He's here stressing on the geographical spread of the gospel as well as he's also saying, when you go, what is the message you are to preach? Look at verse 46. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So you see that beginning at Jerusalem, here's Jewish headquarters, so to speak. You start here, Jews, and then to Gentiles. All places, all people groups. That's the thrust here. And the content is what? Repentance and forgiveness for sins in his name. Calling people to turn from their sins and find forgiveness in the name of Jesus alone. What is interesting is this. Jesus is not telling his disciples then and not telling us now. Adjust the message according to the geographical area. Hey, this is an area that we may be offended if you talk about repentance. It's not what he said. It's the same message irrespective of the postal code. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. It's the same message. You begin here. Take it everywhere. The content is repentance and forgiveness. The scope, all nations. 
beginning in Jerusalem. And the geographical spread is again stressed in Acts 1.8, that very familiar verse. If you look, turn two, page, two books to the right, you got Acts chapter 1, verse 8, page 1549. Again, here's uh, Jesus saying to the disciples, uh, more than 11 here, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Notice, in Jerusalem, that's the city. In Judea, think of that as province or state. Samaria, adjacent province, and to all ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts tells us how the gospel spread beyond the Jew to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles, and to Asia Minor, which modern-day Turkey, and parts of Europe, and ends with Rome in Acts 28. And the Acts 29, so to speak, is ongoing. We're all part of that, continuing to take the gospel. So Jesus wanted his disciples, back to Matthew, and by extension all of us, make disciples of people everywhere of all backgrounds, because my authority extends all over the earth. Three things. Three things he wants us to do. Number one, his followers need to go to places preaching the gospel. Got that first command. Therefore, go. Go. Part of making disciples, we have to go. Now, I'm sure you've heard that go here refers to as you are going, meaning these three words going, go, baptizing, teaching, they're participles. The main verb here, main action, main command is make disciples. How? By doing these things. So there's a thought that says the going is assumed. So as you are going, I don't think Jesus is primarily stressing that here. I think the command is go. Because the language, the way make disciples is structured has the idea this this comes before that. It is a specific command, go. And obviously, as you are going, you will be teaching, proclaiming the gospel, and those who respond, they'll be baptized and uh, or baptize them and teach them. What does he mean by go? Does everyone need to leave where they are and go to different places? Obviously, that wouldn't make any sense, right? Because the book of Acts, they talk about churches being planted, elders being established, things like that. The idea here is, we have to look at this in two ways. Number one, some of Jesus' disciples, some of us, are called to go into our own little world where God has kept us, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our uh, social settings. We go with our eyes open, praying for opportunities to share the gospel and faithfully keep doing it. But then there's, Others who are called to go to specific places. People that we typically call as missionaries. To take it to other places. And what is interesting is over the last few years, God has providentially placed us in a place where he's bringing other nations into our midst. But sometimes God calls people specifically Go to those places. Go. So this command applies in two levels, so to speak. You're in Windsor. Some of you come from Michigan. Where you are, go. Go with this deliberate intention into your workplace, into your neighborhood. Keep your eyes open as you walk down the street. This person... Pray for them. Sometimes people call that as a prayer walk. Walk down the street. Just as you walk, pray down the street. And if there's an opportunity, be wise. Give the gospel. Establish friendships. Others, call to a specific place. That's why we as a church are committed to missions in many parts of the world. Whatever we can do, we must do. Some are called to go physically, By us sending them, some are called to go in our neighborhoods. That way people in the dark can be exposed to the light of the gospel. Maybe you are the only one that might ever share the gospel with them. 
You ever thought about that? They go into workplaces. We assume people hear the gospel. Don't assume it. Don't assume. At least have not heard the biblical gospel. They hear a lot of things out there. That's not the gospel. And even if others have mentioned to them or not, that's not something we should focus on. We should, as the Lord leads us and provides opportunities for us, pray for boldness, wisdom and clarity and proclaim the gospel. That's the intent with which we should be functioning on a daily basis. When we get up, we should have that mindset. Lord, who can I talk to you about? So first thing here, what we are told, go with the intention of proclaiming the message of repentance from sin and faith. Go. Second, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing is in the present tense, meaning there's a continual process in disciple making. As people put their faith in Christ, they get baptized. As many other scriptures clearly indicate to us, baptism itself does not save anyone. Only Jesus saves. But baptism is a public identification with Jesus through which a person declares to all people publicly that I have turned from my sin by the grace of God and I have accepted the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus and I'm following him. No other gods. Only Jesus. You're publicly proclaiming that. Something happened in my heart. What happened in my heart? When I put my faith in Christ, I was spiritually joined with Christ, with his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm a new person. God's done a work in my heart. He's given me a new heart. That's what you publicly acknowledge when you undergo baptism. That's why only believers are to be baptized. Only believers. Because make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. These are disciples. Those who on the inside have turned to Christ and now outside they're telling people I have turned to Christ. That's why Christian baptism is often described as believer's baptism. In Acts chapter 2 verse 41, the day the church was born, those who accepted Peter's message, meaning they heard the gospel, they accepted, then they were baptized and 3,000 were added to their number that day. So they heard, their hearts were opened, accepted, and then they testified outwardly. That's why biblical faith does not baptize infants. They cannot believe. In fact, they're not even aware of what is going on. Think about that. There's no change on the inside for them. That cute little baby is still a sinner under the wrath of God. You don't baptize babies. It diminishes the significance of something so serious that the Lord has given. And yet the enemy has wreaked havoc in this clear command of our Lord. Clear. You don't need me to really walk you through this, honestly. Crystal clear. The Lord would not leave us in confusion about the greatest task he's left on earth to accomplish. Right? If you've been with me through the last few weeks, especially about the return of Christ and a lot of things, I kept saying that I don't know. I'm not saying that with this because it is so clear. This is a clear command. And the word baptism means to dip plunge under or submerge. That is the meaning of the word. Even secular literature of the day says that. Bottom line, it means immersion. Immersion. Nothing but immersion gives the clear outward picture of identifying with Jesus as death, burial, and resurrection. Sprinkling, darting the forehead, or even pouring water just does not communicate that inward reality. Only immersion fits the picture. That is why John the baptizer baptized people in the Jordan River because there was much water there. John chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus himself was baptized by immersion. Mark chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. And the book of Acts tells us about the Ethiopian eunuch. He says, look, there is water. This guy is going on a chariot. 
long distance. He would have had water to drink. He could have said, Philip, hey, just dart it on the forehead or something. No. Look, there's water. So they get down, goes into the water, comes up. That's what the text says in Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 38. Again, immersion is the mode of biblical baptism. As soon as a person puts his or her faith in Christ. How soon? Right away. Right away. The book of Acts gives evidence of people getting baptized midnight. Read Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. See, what we do, and I understand we don't want to rush anyone into baptism. I get that, and we don't do that here. We don't rush you, but we don't hold you back also. We try to facilitate. But sometimes the error is this. We do the third one, teaching them everything to obey, and then baptize them. Is there a danger in baptizing people who are not true converts? You know, at the end of the day, you can only do your best. I'm glad Simon the sorcerer was baptized because he was not a true convert. I don't look at him as a true convert. Yet, one of the apostles baptized him. Point is this. Not that we take baptism trivially, but we can't overthink this also. Jesus said, they make a public profession of faith. Encourage them. Share the gospel, encourage them, tell them the cost of obedience. But at the end of the day, we'll have to leave it in the Lord's hand. We are just facilitating walking in obedience. We don't want people to be disobedient. And Jesus is specific here, baptizing new converts. What he says is, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice Jesus does not say names, plural. Names, singular. Father, Son and Spirit. It's an identification the saving work of the one God who exists in three persons. Not three gods, not names, name. One in essence, existing in three persons. Now again, there's some unhealthy controversies about baptism, especially whose name should be baptized, the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, or just in the name of Jesus. Now, Jesus here gives Father, Son, and the Spirit. But if you look in Acts 12, I'm in Acts 8. I'm just going to read it to you. Philip says, When the Samaritans believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. In the name of Christ, they were baptized. Same thing in Acts 10, 4, chapter 10, verse 48. Cornelius' family was baptized in the name of Jesus. Acts 19, verse 5. The Ephesian believers were baptized in the name of Jesus. You don't find the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. What am I trying to communicate here? We should not look at Matthew 28 as a formula. The identification is, is with this one God who does a saving work. Yes, we do like many churches use the Father, Son and the Spirit to get baptized but it's not something that is worth dividing over. Because I've had people say I was only baptized in the name of Jesus. Should I undergo this baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit? Always my question is this. Did you repent of your faith at that time and love Christ? Yes. Do you love him now? Everything is good. You don't need to. You don't need to. Again, we don't want to cheapen this glorious ordinance that the Lord has given to us. That's, that's the idea. That's the idea. The important thing is to obey. Quickly. And that the church, based on the authority of Jesus, should encourage people to follow through in this important act of obedience without delay. When a person claims to be a follower of Jesus and yet refuses or delays in getting baptized, they are walking in sin. So if any one of you here says, I'm a follower of Christ. But you're stubbornly refusing to obey in the waters of baptism. I don't have any other way to put it. You are disobedient. You are walking in sin. There's just no two ways about it. You may say, well, I have all the intention to obey. Delayed obedience, as I've said repeatedly over the years, is disobedience. It's disobedience. If a person truly believes in Jesus and they have the indwelling spirit in their hearts, 
why would he or she not want to acknowledge Jesus publicly? I cannot understand that. I cannot understand that. Why would you resist the Holy Spirit? Why do you want to remain stiff-necked? Because that's what you are. Why? You say, some sin is stopping me. Then, put away that sin. You say, if you keep on saying, the sin is stopping me, the sin is stopping me, you know what that means? You love your sin more than you love Jesus. You're saying, I'm not able to get rid of this sin. Why? If I love Jesus, I should ask him, help me. You are more precious to me. Go back and read Matthew 27 as he hung on that cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you stand at the foot of the cross, can you really cherish your sin and say this sin is too important for me to give up Jesus? I'm sorry. I'm not yet ready. That's what we do. Whether it's baptism or something else, extend that principle to any sin that you're holding on to. Sin of bitterness, sin of lust, anger, impatience, greed, other idols, whatever it is, at the end of the day, if you want to get rid of them, we have to come to the cross. You did this for me. How can I hold on to this that will lead to my destruction? We cannot say we love Jesus and continue to love and cherish our sin at the same time. Jesus himself said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus, that's why strongly warned people who refused to publicly identify himself with these words. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Matthew 10 verses 32 and 33. This talks about a person who continually, as a pattern of life, disowns Jesus. Another occasion, Jesus repeated the same warning in a slightly different way. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. So if you've put your faith in Christ, or if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, and you're thinking about it, understand, when you put your faith in Jesus, you must follow through publicly with the waters of, through the waters of obedience. There is a cost for some of you who come from different backgrounds. I understand that. But I would be unfaithful if I don't tell you what the scriptures tell you. As Jesus said, what's at stake here is our soul. You cannot, if you put your faith in Christ and still delaying baptism, you cannot start your Christian life with prolonged disobedience. You're setting a pattern that's going to lifelong weaken your spiritual walk. Take this seriously. Even if you're visiting with us here, you're part of another church, praise God, trust it's a biblical church, go to your leaders there, talk to them. Talk to them. And testify of Christ publicly. We, as I said earlier, we want to encourage people. We don't push you, we don't want to hold you back. We want you to obey the Lord so that he'll be glorified. Jesus did not die in secret. He died publicly. He underwent all that shame publicly. Why would we want to not do it publicly? So, making disciples involves going and preaching the gospel, baptizing, and third, first part of verse 20, teaching believers to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. Everything. That's the third part. It's not enough just to lead someone to Christ. That's just a start. Not even enough encouraging them to get baptized. But this ongoing teaching. Acts 2.42 says the early church was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. God gave the apostles 
a body of knowledge that we call as the New Testament, body of truth. That come out of the Old Testament, we have the word of God in its entirety now. The word that has been entrusted to the believers once and for all. And that's the word that keeps informing us of who God is, informing us of who we are and what we are to do and not to do. This is something that should be taught constantly, continually, to the very end. The, the early apostles, the early believers couldn't get enough of apostolic teaching. They were meeting in homes every day. Here we are sometimes. Our personal devotions. Sitting under the teaching of others. We don't commit ourselves continually. Bible studies. Teaching people who we know need better biblical truths, taking time out of our schedule, meeting with them one-on-one for coffee. It's, it's not complicated. Find someone who knows less than you, start pouring your life into them. We don't even pray, God, bring someone in my life so I can teach your truths. You have not, because what? You ask not. Now we can ask with wrong motives, so everyone look at me as a teacher. That's wrong, we get that. But we don't need to go to the other extreme. We're not even prompted to pray that way. You know why? Because our life is so busy pursuing our own things. That's why. And when your mind is cluttered in so many areas of doing so much, parents are busy running around. Young people are busy running around. Life is not so complicated. We complicate it and then we say, somehow in all this busyness, God, work away in me. If you want to serve God, something needs to go. You need to figure out your priorities. And that that will require no to what your flesh craves. But then there is the true joy of walking in obedience. So that's why it's important for the church to have the clear focus, a teaching church. That's the priority. Everything else fits alongside, but the main main thing is, because the world doesn't impart any truth to us. People should be able to come to a local assembly and hear the word of God, clearly taught, without being ashamed or afraid of anything. Because notice what Jesus says. They need to be taught to obey everything I've commanded you, which means everything should be taught in order for people to obey. I cannot look at this passage or some passages, no, that might be offensive. I should strive not to offend people. That's important. Because some people actually find joy in being offensive. Honestly, there are some teachers who are like that. They actually find joy and it's a pride. We are the only ones standing up for the truth. Nobody else is. That's pride. There's a remnant. There's a faithful remnant always. Yes, vast majority have compromised. We get that. But let's not get into the Elijah complex. I'm the only one who hasn't bowed my knee to Baal. We need to strive to even share things that are offending with a heart of love, with a heart of brokenness. Because we struggle in obedience ourselves. If our hearts are fully exposed, we know our weaknesses. Not a Sunday goes by when I feel like a hypocrite standing here and preaching. I got to live up to what I'm saying. It's honestly hard. But that does not mean I can go to extremes. My job here, and thankfully the other other people who are involved in the teaching ministry feel the same way. Our job is to lovingly communicate the truth and encourage one another to obey, no matter the cost, what Jesus has commanded. And that's why even teachers must always be willing to be students. 
always willing to be students. Spiritual pride is a ruin of many. On the other hand, a humble spirit is a teachable spirit. We're all learners in one sense. All learners. Some may be set apart to teach in a specific sense. But in a sense, we're all learners. In a sense, we're all teachers too. Imparting spiritual truths to others. And these biblical truths needs to be passed along for how long? Until the end of the age. Because that's what Jesus is saying. Do this. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The very fact that he says, I'm with you to the very end of the ages, we are to continue this till he returns to usher in the new age. When? We don't know. But we're getting closer. There's no question about it. So we have to keep doing this and it's a challenging ministry. It is tough to obey the Great Commission. That is why Jesus starts with authority given to me and ends with, I am with you always. Matthew starts his gospel in Matthew 1 about the Savior. The name is Emmanuel, God with us. He ends with what? I am with you always. It's the presence of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit that's caused the church to break into dark areas for over 2,000 years and continues to penetrate into those places. It's because people have clung to these verses. In your name, Jesus, we are going. Resembling you, name has the idea of authority, identification. In your name, I'm your ambassador. What a rich, glorious title we're given in 2 Corinthians 5. Ambassadors of Christ. And here, I'm with you always. I know you're frail. I know you're going to be afraid. You're praying. You're thinking about what you need to say. But when, you, when you're standing right before this person, you freeze. That tongue is just tied. I know that fear. But I'm with you. Trust me. Open your mouth. Open your mouth. How often you've experienced that you were in fear. But once you open the mouth, the words just came. Your hearts were filled with joy. And even if the other person rejected you, spat on you, you still felt joy because you obeyed Christ's command in proclaiming the truth in love and with a broken heart. That's why it takes faith. I must believe his word. We love to quote, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, I'm with you always. But all these promises are given in a context also. As you go about doing this, you will experience my presence. You go about pursuing your own interests, that vibrant fellowship is going to be found missing. But I tell you, it is really sad. Been doing this for close to three decades now. Sometimes over the years, there's not a whole lot of change in people at all. It's just heartbreaking. It's the same old interests, same old things clinging, just a few changes here, there. Sad. Should we not, as we grow older in the faith, be compelled to give more of ourselves, more of our resources? You're talking about the Great Commission, missions. How will people go unless they're sent? They are to be sent, not just our prayers, which is very important, but our finances also. We focus on building our mansions where there's still over 2,000 languages that does not have a single verse of the Bible translated. Some are partial beyond the 2,000 and some only the New Testament. I bet every single one here who has some kind of a Christian connection, you have more than one Bible in your house different translations. They don't. How will the gospel flourish if we live for ourselves? That's why I said in the beginning, radical measures have to be taken if we want to put this command, put this command to use. See, the part of the Great Commission is not just people going willy-nilly and just preaching the gospel. It's to plant churches at the end of the day the goal is as believers are raised up in places where people go, a local assembly is formed. So then they can continue practicing the ordinances and the ongoing teaching ministry. And that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort, heartache. And that's why we must be willing to go that extra mile. What can, what can I do? 
Lord, to further the Great Commission? That should be the question that should be ringing in our hearts as we live today. It's not that, Lord, I've come a long way. If you've come a long way, thank God, but move on from the past to what more do you want from me? What, what do you want me to do, Lord? Show me. And when you show me, Lord, I really want to obey. Help me. This is not just for knowledge. It's actually for obedience. Give me the strength. Help me to serve you with all that I am and with all that I have and with all that I can. Help me, Lord, to stretch myself. I understand about burnout, but I'm, my greater concern is rusting out. I have not yet personally in my close relations come to anyone where I had to say, hey, pull back, you're burning out. I know my sphere of influence is very, very limited. But even in that little sphere, burning out is not our fear, is it? To be honest with us, we are burning out in secular interests. Honestly, some parents are burning out and running one place, another place with their kids. Being there is more important than in being in fellowship sometimes and in meetings. Pleasures don't lie. Priorities reveal clearly in action. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you keep calling me? Satan opposes biblical worship. John Piper said it right. Missions exist where worship does not exist. You want a people, people group, people in a certain geographical location to worship God. How can they worship if they never heard of him? That's why. That's why we focus on spreading the gospel. Churches can be planted. Assemblies can be formed. People can come together, worship the glorious Christ and spread the message in their community. That is why we live and breathe. That's how we must focus on turning our time, talent, and treasures so that God would be glorified. Jesus knows the enemy will oppose tremendously. That's why he says, I am with you always. I am with you. What a promise. It's this promise that the church clings to, that our own assembly clings to. Because we know the work is not yet done. It will and has to continue until Jesus returns. The great commission cannot become the great omission. Which sadly it is. Sadly that's the case. Often in our lives because of our preoccupation. We are so preoccupied with our own interests and we are so cunning and deceitful where we can even come up with wonderful ways to say God is glorified when my interests are fulfilled. That's the way to soothe our convicting conscience, isn't it? Easy. God blesses us with good things to enjoy, no question about it. But may I never cherish the gifts more than the giver. How will I know I'm not doing that? Because when those gifts are stripped away or when there's a call for me to give up those things, I joyfully do it without reluctance. Then I know the giver is more important to me than my gift. When my interests are withheld, when the things that I want, the things that I want are not granted to me or the things that I have are taken away from me, do I still say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or do I live in disappointment? That tells us, if we are living in disappointment, that we're craving for something, and God may strike right there to say, there, you're idle. Let me strike it for your own good. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. This is not good for you. 
He does not withhold good things. Scripture tells us. We define good things as what we define as good. But God knows what good things are. Afflictions are also a good thing because that helps us to treasure Christ. Even though the outer man is perishing, the inner is being renewed. How? Because through this, the inner is saying, this is what will last for eternity. Christ, everything else, everything else must go. I've given you these things to hold it with an open hand, my child. I I want you to be happy. I want you to delight in me. Am I your treasure, Jesus is saying? Am I that pearl of great price for which you're willing to lay everything and say, you and you alone, Jesus, enough. Not you plus. There is no plus. Is Jesus enough? That's the message of Matthew. And our response must be, yes, Jesus is enough. His presence with us. Enough. Let's keep on pressing on with his confidence. He is with us as we go about obeying his commands. Yes, there will be challenges. Many, many challenges. Challenges for faithful workers to be raised up. A lot of people talk about ministry, but consistently doing it, gone. You hear all the time from our missionaries, harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. Workers are few. That's why just beseech the Lord. Plead with them to raise up workers. It's challenge from the enemy. Opposition from our own sinful flesh. That's why we are to fervently pray. We cannot do this in our own strength. Don't walk away from this message thinking, okay, I got to now pull myself up and do this. In a sense, we have to. There's a human responsibility here. But also we have to humble ourselves and pray and cry to God. Say, you got to do this in me. You got to do this in the life of this church and the life of others. We need to pray for strength, pray for perseverance, pray for having our eyes focused on Jesus, that pearl of great price. Pray for power to turn our eyes away from looking at worthless things. We cannot do do that on our own. Sin does bring pleasure. Passing maybe, but still pleasure. We need God to turn our eyes away from that. We need God to help the word to run rapidly in the lives of our missionaries, in our own lives. And we can do all this with the confidence that the sovereign king, the ruler of the universe, has promised to be with us all the way. Lord Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. That's how you helped us to start this gospel, a promise-keeping God. Kept your promises and will continue to keep your promises. And you promised us here, I will be with you until the very end. You're a God who cannot lie. You will be with us. Help us to experience your presence, Lord, even when everything seems to fall apart, even when we don't see much result from sharing the gospel repeatedly. It seems at times people become more hardened as we share the gospel. But Lord, let us not give up based on the outward responses. Let us rejoice in the fact that our names are written in heaven and you'll use our message to bring glory to yourself either through the salvation of people or through your judgment upon them. You will be glorified one way or the other. So we can faithfully, with utter dependence upon your spirit and in a loving and a faithful manner, keep proclaiming the whole counsel of God to all people that you bring in our way at all times. Lord, forgive me. For I know I have failed in so many ways in, in, in this aspect. Forgive this church. For we have many weaknesses too. 
But Lord, we come back to you again because you call us back. You call us back to come to the foot of the cross and to unload all our burdens. But there is always a Savior who welcomes us, who gives us rest, and who helps us to see that his commands are not burdensome. Thank you, Jesus. And if there's any here who's still far away from you, please, dear Lord, help them to help them to come to you. Help them to realize this life will one day end, maybe even today. Help them to turn to you before it is too late. Make them your worshiper, Lord. Please do that. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.